Psalm 63, and we'll begin in verse number 1. The psalmist says, O God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see Thy power and Thy glory, so as I have seen Thee in the sanctuary. Because Thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise Thee. Thus will I bless Thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in Thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise Thee with joyful lips. When I remember Thee upon my bed and meditate on Thee in the night watches, because Thou hast been my help, Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword, they shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time. Magnify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ tonight and have Your will and Your way in our hearts and lives. We love You, Lord, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As a little bit of a subtitle to uh, Psalm 63, we're given this truth. It says, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. That's very interesting to me because if you were to read the 63rd Psalm, there's not a lot of things that would lead you to believe that David is necessarily in a wilderness place. There are a few things. In verse number 1, he does say that he's in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. In verse number 2, it's evident that he's not in the sanctuary because he longs to see God in, uh, as he has seen Him when he was in the sanctuary. Uh, when you go down to verse 5, he says, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Sort of leads you to believe maybe he doesn't have a table spread in front of him. Verse number 7 gives you a little bit of a hint where it says, In the shadow of thy wings, let you know maybe not everything is uh, how he'd like for it to be. Uh, in verse number 9, he says, Those that seek my soul to destroy it. So it tells you that somebody's after him. Uh, and in verse number 11, he says, But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. So you have a few hints there in the psalm that he's in a place of wilderness. But this psalm is not a psalm occupied with complaining. Let me say this, that we can't worship and complain at the same time. This is a psalm that is occupied with the topic and thought and ideal and principle of worship. And I want to preach to you for a little while tonight on worshiping in the wilderness. Let me say to you that if you wait until things are good to worship God, you're not necessarily going to worship Him all the time. Because there will be times things won't be so good in your life. You see, we don't worship God because of what He does for us. Because there's times when the Lord giveth and there's times when He taketh away. If we're going to say like Job, blessed be the name of the Lord, then our worship is going to have to be based on something other than just what He's done for us. Our worship has to be based on who He is. You know, that's why you worship Him. You worship Him because He's God and He's worthy of the worship. 
You don't worship Him because He helps you, even though He does help you. You don't worship Him because He saved you, even though He certainly saved me. And if you're saved, it's because He saved you, because there's none other Savior. We worship Him because of who He is. He's God. He's the God of the universe. He's the Creator God. He's the Jehovah God. He's the Lord God of hosts, and He's the Lord God Almighty. He's God manifest in the flesh. He's God which is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Uh, He is who He is, and that's why we worship Him is because of who He is. David knew this valuable truth. David was not in a setting that most people would think would be conducive to worship. But sometimes it's in those settings that we can really worship because uh, we're not worshiping just as a matter of formality, but we're worshiping because we need to worship. Do you know something? You need worship just as much as God deserves worship. You need to worship Him just as much as He deserves to be worshipped. It's that valuable in our lives. David knew this truth. I want to say a word about why he was in the wilderness. And this is just sort of a little introduction, but three reasons that he was in the wilderness or three things about him being in the wilderness. I want you to notice, first off, his pitiful condition. He's down in the wilderness of Judah, the Bible says. Uh, Down there in the most southern uh, part of the nation of Israel, it was a desolate and barren place. And his conditions were were pitiful, I would say, that we could uh, fairly and safely assume that about his situation. Things weren't going as well as he would have wanted them to go. And you know, there's going to be times in your life that you lack things. And you won't lack anything that you need to survive. God's promised you that. But you might lack some things that you desire. There might be some problems come up in your life. In fact, I'd go as far as say there will be some problems come up in your life. He is not in a place of comfort. He is not laid up upon a couch at ease, but he is most likely dwelling in caves and in a desolate land. But I see that not only his pitiful condition, but I see the reason why was because of a pursuing king. It's interesting what he says there in verse number 9. He says, but those that seek my soul. If you see in the book of Psalm, uh, or I mean in the life of David in the book of First and Second Samuel, you'll find that David did not, or Saul did not just want David to pay. He wanted him dead. Time and time again, he could have thrown David in prison and he didn't. And time and time again, David could have took Saul's life and he didn't. But still, there comes a point in uh, their relationship where the Bible says that from that day forward, uh, Saul was his enemy continually for the rest of his life and for the rest of his reign. Saul made it his purpose to destroy David. David had an enemy that was hot in pursuit. That's what had driven this soon-to-be king into exile was uh, the sitting king was pursuing him and trying to destroy him and take his life. Uh, Let me say that that there's another king coming. But as far as this world goes, there is a sitting king, and he is our enemy. There is the God of this world. He is our foe. He is our enemy. He's trying to destroy us. And you know, sometimes we get in the wilderness just because things aren't going well, but then sometimes we get in the wilderness because there is satanic oppression taking place in our life. The devil is doing his best to destroy us and to wreck our lives. Then I, I think there's probably another thing that sent him into the wilderness, or maybe it was a condition of being in the wilderness. I see not only his pitiful condition and uh, a pursuing king, but I see a perplexing calling that no doubt was on David's life. Samuel, 
had already come and anointed him uh, to be the king of Israel. And yet nothing in his life is working out uh, to where he can be the king. Now, God was working things out, but things sure didn't seem to be working out. No doubt there were times when David pillowed his head at night and wondered if God knew what he was doing because it didn't seem like a conventional road to take to being crowned the king. You know, there's times in our life when it sends us in the wilderness because we don't understand how things are going. That was Job's biggest complaint was he couldn't figure God out in the whole mess. His biggest complaint was not the bulls. In fact, he said very little about that. His biggest complaint was not necessarily even the death of his children. He said very little about that. His biggest complaint was not that he was impoverished. He didn't say a whole lot about that. The biggest thing that Job complains about is that he can't find God in all of it. No doubt David was perplexed by his circumstances, confused by what was taking place. God had made clear that He wanted David to be the king, but David's not the king, and hes it's not just that he's not the king, he's a fugitive, and he's being chased into the wilderness. And so it's in this situation that David worships the Lord. I'd say to you tonight, and I'd say to myself tonight, that if David can worship in that situation, surely I can worship him tonight in my situation. I'm not facing anything like what David was facing. Now, we can draw some parallels and we can draw some similarities there, but but I'm not facing anything like David is facing. And so if David can worship the Lord, then that means that I can worship the Lord tonight and I can get into His courts and I can get into His presence with praise and thanksgiving. How did David do it? I think we have a key to it here in this psalm, and I have three things I want you to see tonight. I want you to notice, first off, that his worship was conceived with an attitude. His attitude dictated and determined his actions. And isn't that always the way in life? Now, I'm not a big proponent of the power of positive thinking. Say that five times fast. But I will say this, attitude is an important thing. I've met lots of people that had the right pedigree and had the right support system. They just had a rotten attitude. I've seen people that had all the problems in the world and had a good attitude about it. And it was like everywhere that they walked, they dripped sunshine and they uh, radiated gladness and happiness. And I've seen other people that didn't have a problem in the world, it seemed, but they sure had a rotten attitude about not having a problem. And it was like a dark cloud followed them and thunder and lightning. Everywhere that they went, they were a miserable soul to be around. Nobody wanted anything to do with them. And that's what finally happens to folks like that is nobody has anything to do do with them, they wind up lonely and miserable because of their attitude. I believe David's attitude was right. Now, I see some things in this psalm that tell me that. I want you to notice first off that he had an attitude of recognition. Look at the first phrase. And I like that this psalm starts out this way. Now, David didn't start out saying, Lord, everything's bad. I've had some times like that. And I think maybe sometimes that's a little bit cathartic and therapeutic, or Barney would say it's therapeutic. Uh, to just complain to the Lord, and we pour out our complaint to Him, and I, I understand that. David didn't start that way. He didn't say, Lord, you've made a mess of things. He didn't say, Lord, look at where I'm at. He didn't say, God, I don't have anything. The first thing he says in the midst of this wilderness is he says, Oh, God, Thou art my God. And he recognizes that even though everything else is wrong, God's still on the throne. God's still in control. Not only is God still in control, but God still cares about him because he says, Thou art my God. 
What he's saying is this, Lord, I still own you and I know that you still own me. I still confess you and I know that you still confess me. My problems may be large. My circumstances may be dire. My understanding may be confused and confounded. But no matter what's wrong, no matter how, uh, how many things up looks up or up looks down, down looks up, black looks white, white looks black, and everything seems like it's falling to pieces. God, I know that when I don't know anything else, I know that you're still my God. Because that relationship doesn't change. You know, sometimes we get feeling like God's forgotten about us. And even in the wilderness, He's not forgotten about us. He's still our God. So it's an attitude of recognition. Then notice His attitude of resolution. He says, early will I seek thee. Now, there's, we can fuss and fight and feud about what early means. Some folks say that what David's saying is early in the morning, and that may have been true, and that's fine if that's the case. But I think what David's trying to teach us is this, before I've tried everything else, Lord, I'm going to try you. I've joked before about a church sign. I really saw it, and I, and I can't remember where I saw it, but I, you know, and you've seen church signs. Some churches ought to have their signs took away, Amen. Not not because they're controversial, just because they're stupid. Amen. Amen. And uh, the, a, a church sign it said, "When you when when all else fails, try prayer." Boy, somebody I'll jerk somebody up by the ear over that. Amen. You don't try everything else and then try prayer. Psalmist said, "Early will I seek thee." Why did he determine to seek him early? Well, he's in the wilderness. Maybe he wanted to seek him early before he starved or dehydrated. You know, sometimes the reason we got to seek Him early is because we're getting weaker as the moments go by. That's, that's, that's the very condition that we're in when we're in the wilderness. We're getting weaker. And let me tell you something. Everybody gets discouraged, but you stay discouraged and it'll kill you. Everybody gets overwhelmed. But what do we call it when a person gets overwhelmed and never gets above water? They drown. Everybody gets that way. I think he said, early will I seek thee, because maybe he was in danger of starving or dehydrating. Maybe because the prey, or the predator rather, was out there and was seeking his life. I'll tell you why you need to seek God in the midst of your troubles, is because the devil's seeking you. So you better get a hold of God. He's going to try to destroy you. He's going to try to distract you. He's going to try to discourage you. He's going to try to do anything that He can in your life to try to bury you so you better get a hold of God real, real early because you're pretty susceptible out there in the wilderness. He says, early, before anything else, early I'm going to do this. You see His resolution. Then notice verse 2. You see His attitude of remembrance. He says, to see thy power and thy glory so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Now, what was he talking about? He was talking about... And listen, we're done preaching on throne rooms, I promise you. But he's talking about the Shekinah glory of God sitting down on the tabernacle when God would come and meet with His people. And he says, Lord, I know how you love to meet with your people. I know how that you've gone above and beyond to create a meeting place for your people. I know that you can come in and your glory can fill my life and my situation. Your power and your glory is enough to drive away anything. Lord, I know you can do this, and that's the way that I want to see you. I said earlier when we started the service, let's not let it just be just another Wednesday night. You know what's killed the midweek service? that people have looked at it like just another Wednesday night. 
I believe in the Lord's day. I, I, I believe that, and the Bible talks about laying things up in store, first of the week and meeting. I believe in the Lord's day, but I also believe He's the Lord of every day. I believe He can meet with us on a Wednesday night just like He can on a Sunday morning. I believe He can. I believe His glory can fill the sanctuary on a Wednesday night just like it can on a Sunday morning. And I believe whether you're at the foot of the temple or whether you're in the midst of the wilderness, God can still meet with you. By the way, what was the tabernacle but the glory of the Lord in the midst of the wilderness? For 40 years they traveled and the glory of the Lord led them and guided them, and the glory of the Lord would sit down and meet with them. That's what it was. Our God has no problem meeting in the wilderness. He's always met with folks in the wilderness. And so we see an attitude of remembrance, but then we see an attitude of reiteration. He says this in verse 3, "...because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee." He's already said, "...I'm going to seek thee." He's already said, I thirst for thee and I hunger for thee. He's already said, I want to see thee. But now he's saying, my lips are going to praise thee. And that's continually praise thee. You know, I I thought about this as I got ready for the service this evening. You know who I've got my worst advice from in my life? Myself. You'd be amazed how high you value your own opinion. You'd be amazed what you can talk yourself into. We're, we're looking at all these houses, you know, and uh, there's a house that we were interested in, but it, it was it was the, the Google map said it was 51 minutes away. Whew, that's a long ways. And uh, you know, I'm in at the church at least five days a week, and sometimes six. Right now, I'm in seven days a week, all day. I mean, you know, you think you're working long hours. I'm 24/7. I'm at my workplace. But, uh, you know, I'm, regularly I'm in at least five days a week. And uh, when we were talking about that, and, and me and my wife were talking about whether we wanted to go see it, I told her this, I said, I'm scared to go see that house. And here's why. Because when we go look at it, we're going to schedule it about 10.30 on a bright, sunny day when there's nothing to do, and it's easy driving, and there's no traffic out. And that 51-minute drive is going to seem like a... A walk in the park. But then, when it's 10.30 at night, on a Sunday night, and we're dog-tired, and we've been going for, for 12, 13, 14 hours, and it's the middle of winter, and there's a layer of ice on the ground, and we're having to drive 51 minutes, we're going to feel every second of that 51 minutes. And you know, sometimes you can talk yourself into some things. I, I was scared too because I didn't want to talk myself into it. You'd be amazed how high you value your own opinion. In fact, usually you don't feel like your opinion was wrong until your opinion has been caught red-handed. You always value your own opinion. The psalmist says this, even if I don't feel like praising him, my lips are still going to praise him. Even if I don't know that my heart can praise Him in, in, in full sincerity, my lips are going to praise He says, even if I don't want to, my lips are going to praise Him. Why? Because thy loving kindness is better than life. He, he says, listen, I, I'd rather die than lose the joy of the Lord. I'd rather die than lose the joy of the Lord. So my lips are going to keep praising me. So we see His attitude in these first three verses. But then notice, not only is it conceived with an attitude, it is continued 
with an action. And true worship in the Scripture always has an outward expression to it. No matter where you go in Scripture, it's always birthed on the inside. But just like faith, though it's an inward thing, there's an outward expression. Worship is the same way in the Bible. It's always got an outward expression. And so for the psalmist, even though it begins with this attitude and he's got the right attitude, it pours out and expresses itself in a few ways. Look at verse number 4. He says, Thus will I bless thee while I live. Now, wait a minute. Let's, let's stop there. What does that mean? Thus will I bless thee while I live. Now, don't, don't, don't. what he's saying is this. This is the way that I'm going to bless you. Thus will I bless thee. This is how I'm going to do it. That's what your Bible says. Thus will I bless thee while I live. How? I will lift up my hands in thy name. We see an action of exaltation. And you'll find that, that in the Bible when people... And, and by the way, that's biblical. Paul said I would, I would, uh, that, that holy men everywhere would lift up holy hands and pray. That's a biblical thing. I'll tell you, I didn't grow up with a lot of this. But I've had to learn to like a lot of this. Because no matter how my flesh feels about this, it's scriptural. It's scriptural. The psalmist says, I will lift up my hands. Why would he do that? Because the lifting up of the hands symbolizes a few things. One of the first things it symbolizes is what? If you see a man and he comes to you like this, what is he telling you? That's a universal symbol of surrender. Surrender. My hands are in the air. You see who and what? And why is it a symbol of surrender? Because it is a symbol of sincerity and transparency. The lifting up the hands is to show that you've got no weapons. You come in kindness. You're laying yourself vulnerable before the other person. So I believe it symbolizes a, a surrender that takes place. And you know, that's what we do when we worship. We're surrendering everything to Him. You don't worship and hold things back on the Lord. You know what the psalmist said? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. If, if, you, if you come to the house of God and worship and you don't leave tired, you did something wrong. Amen? Because He says, all that is within me means everything that I've got. I've had people tell me before, they've said, boy, I was just drained after that service. And then they'll say, you know what I mean? And I just kind of smile. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> I know what you mean. I, I feel drained a lot. And it's not just because I'm up here and whooping and hollering and running around. It's because as we lay our souls open and bare before the Lord, oftentimes there is a spiritual battle taking place for us to be able to yield to the Lord. And that can be an exhausting thing. That can be an exhausting That's why we ought to be worshiping Him all the more on Wednesday, because we're usually exhausted when we come in. Amen? We're just that much closer, right? The psalmist says, all oh, that is within me. Bless His holy name. It's giving everything over to the Lord. I, I think that, but then too, I think it's symbolic of this. It's symbolic of a lifting up of His countenance and His glory and of His name. 
That's what he says. He, the, the psalmist says, I will lift up my hands in thy name. In doing this, I am showing my surrender, but I'm also showing that I believe you are worthy of my praise in lifting up his. I believe that's a biblical thing. I don't say that so that everybody all at once is going to start doing this. I say that to, to say this, that, that worship always has an outward expression. And one of those outward expressions is the lifting up of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see an action of exaltation. Then we see an action of exclamation. Verse number 5. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth shall praise thee with joyful Lips. Isn't it interesting how many times the psalmist talks about lips? You know what that tells me? It tells me he's trying to be very specific to tell us that this is verbal, audible, and intelligible praise. This is not just uh, sort of an inward thing. He's saying this is an outward thing. And he, the, the psalmist says, I'm going with joyful lips to proclaim and to praise thee. I still believe that's biblical. Let me tell you something. This is the lie that people tell you. They tell you that old-time worship, like what we do, is not really biblical. They try to tell us, if you were to see the New Testament church and the way that they worship, it's so vastly different. They didn't do things like that. They would have gathered in, in darkened corners uh, under threat of, of, of sword and under threat of spear, and they would have in hushed tones uh, talked about the goodness of the Lord and, and expounded a few scriptures and met and then hurried on home. That's not the picture I see of, of corporate public worship in the Word of God. I, I, I see the psalmist saying, Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. I see that in the Old Testament that, that when, when the glory of the Lord came and sat down and the priests could not minister, that, that, that the, the song, the singers began to sing, the players began to play, the people lifted up their voices, they shouted and they wept. I'm saying that worship is an expressive thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, everybody's afraid of a little wildfire. Don't you worry about that. There's enough wet blankets to take care of the wildfire. You just worry about getting getting sparked up yourself. I understand there is such a thing as people, a show in the flesh. I know that. I've been in services. I'm sure you have too. I've known people, and I'm sure we know the same people. But let me tell you something. The problem in our Baptist churches is not that we're too wild. The problem is that we're dead. The, the, the problem, you, you know, everybody, everybody's constantly talking about, I heard it put this way, everybody's constantly talking about the, the great danger of legalism. And there is a danger of legalism in, in churches, that's true. Uh, and, and we all know churches that where there's that problem. But, but let me say this, that the problem in our churches is not that we're working too much. The problem in our churches is usually that we're working too little. The problem in our churches is not that we're too strict. Most of the time in most churches, the problem is that we're too loose. And the problem is not that we're too loud when we worship. The problem most of the time is that we're too dead when we worship. The psalmist says, my lips are going to praise thee. I'm going to tell people. I'm going to shout about it. I'm going to let people know how good you've been to me. Verse number 6, we see an action of exploration. He says this, when I remember thee upon my bed... 
and meditate on thee in the night watches. He says, I'm going to spend some time thinking about you, Lord. And by the way, it's interesting that he says, uh, My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. You know, you know why a lot of people have trouble worshiping him in the house of God? It's because they don't worship him when they're laying in their bed at night. They don't worship Him when they're sitting on their couch. They don't worship Him when they're sitting in their... They don't worship Him when they're driving down the road. Let me tell you something. One thing is for sure. God's not going to bless us with His presence if we try to treat it like it's the kitchen faucet that we just turn on. That's foolishness. The psalmist says, I'm going to spend some time thinking upon you, Lord. I'm going to spend some time meditating upon you. Boy, that word meditate. We've let Eastern mysticism hijack that word meditation and make it something that the Bible never presents it as such. Meditation is not the clearing of your mind. Amen? If anything, it's the filling of your mind. It's the thinking, the the deliberate and intelligent pondering and musing upon a thing. And the Lord says, uh, the the psalmist says, Lord, I'm just going to spend some time thinking about you. You'd be amazed how it would help you in those night hours when you can't sleep if instead of clicking on the TV, you'd just spend some time thinking on Him, musing upon Him, talking to Him, worshiping Him. You'd be amazed because one of two things that happened. You'd either fall asleep and get a good night's rest or you'd stay awake and get a good time with the Lord. He says, I'm going to meditate upon you. So we see that it's an action of exploration. And then verse number 7. I, man, this is interesting. I thought about, when I read this, I'm, I'm being honest now, I, when I read this, I thought about just throwing my outline away and just preaching on verse number 7, but the Lord wouldn't let me. He says this, Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Now stop and think about that. We think of the shadow of his wings as a pleasant place to be. But is the shadow of the wings a pleasant experience? Now, we all know that the analogy and the word picture that's being used here is that of a, of a hen or of a bird that gathers its young under its wings so that it might sit on top and protect its young. We understand that. But understand this, that oftentimes the shadow of a wing, though you are closer in presence, you are farther away in perception. You see, when those little chicks are gathered under the wings of the mama hen, that mama hen is all around those baby chicks. They couldn't get any more in her presence. But they can't see her. In fact, they can't see anything because they're in the shadow of the wings. They're in a place that's confusing oftentimes. They don't know what's going on. They say, and some of you that was raised on farms probably know this to be true. If it's not true, uh, then it's because I made it up. And don't tell people that because it's real good for the preaching. But they, they, they say that a mother hen will sometimes, if a predator is after those baby chicks, will literally sit on top and cover those baby chicks and will give her own life before she'll allow those baby chicks to be killed or harmed. Let me tell you something. That's what our Lord did for us. He literally took the wrath, took the punishment, took everything that sin could throw at Him. In fact, He didn't just bear our sin. He became our sin and died that we might be protected and shielded in Him. But oftentimes in our life, when we're in the shadow of His wings, it's a confusing place. 
oftentimes in the shadow of His wings. It's a dark place. It's a scary place even at times. You can imagine for those baby chicks, they can hear the ruckus that's going on around, but they can't make sense out of the things that they can hear. The psalmist says, because you've helped me, because I know you're a help to me, because I know you'll do good by me and for me and in me and through me, because of that, when I'm in the shadow of your wings, when I'm in the midst of your presence, but I can't see you anywhere, when you're all around my situation, but I can't seem to find you anywhere, I'm going to trust that you're over me and you're above me. We see in this passage these actions. But then what about the conclusion of this psalm? takes a little bit different tone. And I'll be honest with you, oftentimes as a preacher, sometimes the way that these psalms end, they, they take a very uh, practical and a, a, a very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A very uh, time-intensive turn. What I mean is these deal particularly with David's situation. And sometimes as they deal particularly with David's situation, and you can see that in the next few verses, he says, But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go in the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by their sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. I mean, unless you just happen to be dealing with something in your life where somebody's trying to kill you or somebody's lying about you, sometimes we shy away from that because we're not sure that it applies. But understand that as he concludes this psalm of worship and this psalm of praise, he begins to deal with an awareness that he has about his circumstance. Now you say, preacher, why is this important? Because worship is not a distraction from our problems. Rather, worship is a way of dealing with our problems. It's not just to take our attention away from the things that are taking place, but rather it's something to put in perspective the problems that we're facing. And so this concludes with an awareness of some things. First off, notice his awareness of the obstacles that he faced. Look at the first phrase in verse 9, "...but those that seek my soul to destroy it." Now, they sought his soul before he worshipped the Lord. They sought his soul after he worshipped the Lord. Don't think just because you get right with God that everybody's going to get right with you. I, you know, you hear people say, and, and I don't know, maybe this is ugly to say, but you hear people say, I've heard preachers say this before, well, you know, you can't be right with God and be wrong with others. And I, and I know what they mean. I, I understand what they mean. And there is a certain sense and context in which that is true, certainly as it pertains in church life and in dealing with, with church folks. But let me say this. Oftentimes when you're right with God, for that very reason, people will be wrong with you. You may not be wrong with them, but that doesn't mean they ain't wrong with you. Don't think just because you love the Lord, everybody's going to love you. Don't think just because you, you get right with God that every problem's gonna disappear and dissipate. The psalmist says, I know that there's still some out there that seek my soul. Yea, and for the rest of his life, Saul sought to kill David. It wasn't until Saul was killed that these problems disappeared from David's life. They were always there. And by the way, there's always somebody looking to kill David, not just Saul. So he's aware of these obstacles. But notice his outlook. Verse number 11, he says, But the king shall rejoice in God. These people seek my soul. They want to destroy me. There's problems all around. 
And he says, I maybe can't rejoice in my circumstances, but I can rejoice in God. It's very interesting when you hear and listen to people praise the Lord, because there's basically two types of praise that people will offer. And, and both of them are acceptable. I, I'm not trying to say that, that one's better than the other. But I will say this, one is more resilient than the other. Some people will talk about the good things that God's done. Other people will talk about the good God that God is. Now, it's not wrong by any means to talk about the good things that God has done. But understand that if the only way you'll praise Him is to talk about the good things that He's done, there's going to be times when you won't praise Him. You see, the things that God does are not good all the time, but God is good all the time. They're not, they're not pleasing all the time. They're not appealing all the time. There's times that God does stuff in our life, whether in, uh, for chastisement because we've sinned or because He's purging us and, and trying to mold and shape us. But they're things that are not appealing to us. We don't enjoy them. We don't desire them. In fact, we want them out of our life. Yeah, and God wouldn't let them in our life except they bring a desired result for His glory. There's times like that. But let me tell you something, though the things God does are not good all the time, God is good all the time. You can't always rejoice in your circumstances. You hear people say, well, you know, the Bible says in everything give thanks. The Bible doesn't say for everything give thanks. It says in everything give thanks. There's things that I maybe don't feel like I can be thankful for, and I don't think God wants me to be a hypocrite and tell people I'm thankful for something I'm not thankful for. But in every situation and in every circumstance, I can be thankful. I can do like David did. And even in the midst of the wilderness, I can still rejoice in God because God's still good. God's still good. You see His outlook. But then finally you see the outcome. Look at verse number 9 again. But those that seek my soul, what? To destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. Verse number 10, they shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. You know, one of the reasons he could worship is because he knew at some point, and it may not even be in his lifetime, but at some point, vengeance is the Lord's and he would repay. He would repay. Well, I tell you something, and I know we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for them which despitefully use us, and that's true. It's not a, this is not a contradiction of Bible. But time and time again, David also prayed for the, for the glory of the Lord to be vindicated by God showing His wrath and judgment upon this world. And I, I understand we ought not seek it for our benefit, but there's nothing wrong with seeking it for His glory and for His benefit. The psalmist says every mouth that's telling lies, it's going to be stopped. There's coming a time. The outcome of it all. And by the way, what was the outcome? Who was it that wound up on the throne? It was David. In fact, in a sense, who is it that's coming back to the throne? The son of David. The son of God. I'd say things worked out pretty good for David, wouldn't you? Because all things work together for good them that love God, to them which are the called according to His purpose. You say, I, I don't know, preacher. I, I'm, in a, I'm in a rough situation. Oh, you can worship Him. You're not, there's nobody in this room in as bad a situation as David was. I can confidently say that. Your situation may be worse than mine. In fact, God's awful good to me. There's a chance it probably is. 
But there ain't a person in this room got a worse situation than so, Some folks say, well, preacher, you don't know I got sickness in my life. Do you have somebody actively trying to take your life? David did. David could worship in the wilderness. I think we can also worship in the wilderness.